Hi everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Vedant. And I'm Sophie. And today we're here with Professor Christopher Slobogan. Professor Slobogan is the director of the Criminal Justice Program at Vanderbilt University Law School and holds appointments as the Milton R. Underwood Chair in Law and a second appointment as a professor of psychiatry. Slobogan is also in the top five most cited criminal law and procedure professors and has received awards from the American Board of Forensic Psychology and the American Psychology Law Society, just to name a few. Professor Slobogan has also written many books in addition to his most recent publication titled Just Algorithms, Using Science to Reduce Incarceration and Inform a Judas Prudence of Risk. Thanks so much for joining us today, Professor Slobogan. Glad to be here. Can you talk us through your career? Specifically, how did you end up in this intersection of mental health and law? Well, um, I went to law school and didn't know what I wanted to do. So it turned out the University of Virginia, which is where I went to law school, had a master's in law program in mental health law. So I thought I'd try my hand at that, and the rest is history. I ended up representing people in the mental hospital. I ended up evaluating people charged with crime for mental disability issues, and I decided to write in this area. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years. Can you tell us a little bit about a case that has really changed the way that you think about your field? I think the reason I wrote about algorithms and risk assessment in the book that you referenced, uh, if I had to trace it to one case, would be uh, Barefoot versus Estelle, which is a case involving a psychiatrist named Dr. James Grigson, who was famous for always testifying for the prosecution, always to the effect that the person being evaluated and on trial in a capital murder case was dangerous. Now the prosecutors loved him. Uh, he virtually always won. The person was always sentenced to death. And to me, this indicated that the system with respect to risk assessment was totally corrupt and biased. Not because Griggs himself was corrupt. I think he might have been acting in good faith, but clearly he was operating by the seat of his pants. He often didn't even do an interview of the individual. And when he did, was he often focused on just a few factors. And he would routinely express his ultimate conclusion in terms of something like, I'm 100% sure he's dangerous. And that's completely unscientific. And I was looking for a way of avoiding that kind of testimony. And algorithms is one way of doing that. So this kind of, kind of leads quite nicely to the next question, which is um, risk assessment is a complicated field where judges and judges in specific have to weigh mental health prof- professionals' testimonies and facts of the case. So some would argue that this requires a human element to navigate through these challenges. Um, but your argument is that algorithms, machine learning, and AI can bring us a more just assessment. Um, so why do you hypothesize that algorithms in particular, especially compared to human evaluation, are, are better? Yeah, so it does come down to compare it to what argument. Yeah. Um, it's clear we're never going to be great at risk assessment. We're going to have so-called false positives predictions that someone will recidivate when in fact they don't, and then false negatives, people, predictions that people will not recidivate, and in fact they do. Um, but my, in my book, I argue that risk assessment instruments, algorithms, uh, which could be based on artificial intelligence, but today are pretty much based on regression analysis, which is a little bit simpler and more transparent way of assessing risk, that that kind of risk assessment is more accurate and more fair and less biased than human judgment. And it's a very simple idea, which I can elaborate on if you want me to. Basically, algorithms done properly are going to be better than humans. Um, There is one study that suggests otherwise, but if you look closely at that study, 
it in fact converted the lay people doing the assessing, the humans doing the assessing into algorithms by feeding them the kind of information an algorithm would give you. Um, the research study after study indicates that algorithms, risk assessment instruments, structured decision making is more accurate and more reliable than humans. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I guess an interesting question to follow up that with is, you know, how do you deal with algorithmic bias? Sure, mm -hmm. an algorithm can be unbiased in and of itself, but what if the data set that it's relying on is working on um, judges who have been making these biased decisions and, you know, kind of learning from there? How do you reconcile that algorithmic bias? Uh, that's a good question because certainly algorithms are only as good as the statistical analysis and the data that you feed into the algorithm. And if so, if for instance, the data that you feed in the algorithm is racially biased because of racialized policing or because of racialized prosecution, then you're gonna get racially skewed results from the algorithm. Uh, so it's a very real problem. The argument I make in the book is that, that not that algorithms are never biased, never gonna result in racially skewed results. It's just, again, a compared to what argument? that algorithms are better than humans at resolving bias because you can tweak the algorithm in ways that try to undercut the kind of problem you're talking about. So for instance, if we think that people of color are arrested more often for minor level offenses, for drug offenses and other kinds of misdemeanors, and unfairly so because of their race, what do we do? We don't use arrest for minor crimes in the algorithm. We don't use arrest for minor crimes as an outcome measure in the algorithm. And in fact, many risk assessment instruments do not for precisely that reason. On the other hand, if it's a human, it's virtually impossible, even with implicit bias training, to remove the kind of unconscious biases that seep in to decision making. Uh, even if the human explains their decision, it's very difficult to tell for sure whether the reasons the human is giving are in fact the real reasons for the decision. Whereas the algorithm has right on its face, you can see precisely what the risk factors are. And you can say, oh, that risk factor is correlated with race. We need to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess a question for you is, you know, how do you deal with like the speed of an algorithm? Like a human can make a mistake once and learn from it, whereas an algorithm can make a mistake a hundred times before you catch it. How do you yeah. fix that problem? I would argue actually just the opposite, that the human being never gets feedback, right? If a judge says someone is dangerous, either at a pretrial detention setting or at sentencing, um, that person will go to prison or jail or prison and will never find out whether the decision was right or not. What an algorithm does is based on a statistical analysis of large samples uh, involving people, prisoners, and other people who have been, been out in public, and we see whether they, or not they've committed a crime. And then we try to correlate their crime, if they committed one, with risk factors. And then we use that set of risk factors on a separate population to fine tune the algorithm. So their algorithms are based on feedback. Now it is true that if we adopt an algorithm, it might be used over and over again, but ideally this would be the scientific method. We'd be constantly reviewing how the algorithm is performing and updating it. And in fact, most people who use risk assessment instruments um, attempt to make sure that the algorithm is updated uh, periodically for instance, in Virginia, every two or three years to make sure that new data is integrated into the analysis. And so Virginia, for instance, has changed its algorithm as a result of this updating process. Um, just building on from that, 
Do you think it's possible that people would see um, see it as unethical if the algorithm was using actual live cases to improve on its current form? I don't think it would be unethical so long as the people using the algorithm aren't um, somehow manipulating the individual, if, you're t if that's what you mean by live case. I mean, I ideally what algorithms would do is not only try to assess risk, will the person recidivate or not, but also assess what are called dynamic risk factors. That is risk factors that are changeable. So that would mean, for instance, we might say someone is high risk, but we also hopefully would identify through the algorithm uh, factors like impulsivity or anger problems, other kinds of individual problems that can be hopefully treated effectively or at least um, in some way mitigated or ameliorated. Um, so I'm not sure that answers your question, but that would be the ideal behind an algorithmic approach to risk assessment. It's not just risk assessment, it's risk, risk management. Yeah. So it's a more nuanced understanding of risk as a whole. That's the idea. Now, I have to admit that many of the algorithms in use today are not nuanced. And I think maybe that's what both of you are getting at. Some of them uh, have only a few risk factors in them. Some of them rely entirely on so-called static factors that a person can't do anything about. Well. If you can't do anything about the risk factors, that means if you're labeled high risk, you're always going to be high risk, mm -hmm. right? You can't do anything about it. And I think that's, that should not be the case. That would be impermissible in the kind of regime that I would argue for. Absolutely. And you spoke a little bit about how um, the people that make the algorithms can manipulate the factors a little bit and how big of a role that plays. I'm curious, those things considered, you know, how easy is it for someone to manipulate an algorithm? Like, for example, if you were to compare a mental health professional interviewing somebody, you know, you could play down certain aspects or play up certain aspects. So with that in mind, how easy is it to manipulate an algorithm? Oh, it's, it's certainly possible to manipulate an algorithm in, in lots of different ways. First of all, it could be constructed in a way that will produce certain results. It could be done intentionally um, in a way that will reduce, if not inaccurate results, at least results that are skewed in one direction as opposed to another. That's one problem. But let's assume we got a fairly good algorithm. Then it could also be manipulated by the evaluator. The evaluator could score it incorrectly, um, intentionally. Um, but again, the nice thing about an algorithm is we know exactly what risk factors are being looked at. And what I advocate for in the book is whenever they're used, whether it's pre-trial for a bail decision or during parole hearings after a person's sentence, that the process in which an actual, actual instrument is used is transparent that attorneys be present so they can contest the conclusion that I aware that, for instance, this person has three arrests when in fact they only have two, or that the arrests were for a felony as opposed to a misdemeanor. Obviously, that's one job of an attorney is to make sure that accurate information is inputted into the algorithm. And so how does this change with the complexity of machine learning, for example, which isn't necessarily as transparent as just a regression That's analysis? a good point. It's not as transparent, and I have a huge problem with that. I mean, certainly some people say, hey, if it's ac more accurate than a uh, regression-based algorithm, if it's more accurate than a human being, let's use artificial intelligence. The sole goal should be accuracy. The problem I have with that is that there are certain kinds of factors that are illegitimate, even if they improve accuracy. So, for instance, race. Um, and if it's an artificial intelligence, machine learning kind of algorithm, which may not be transparent, which may be opaque, we won't know if race has gone into the analysis. There are other 
reasons I think that we need to be careful with opaque kinds of algorithms. For instance, um, it's possible that a judge would look at the result of an algorithm and say, okay, that's great. I'll use that as my baseline. But now I'm going to adjust it. And research shows that when judges adjust it, they usually adjust upward as opposed to down. In other words, they move the person from medium risk to high risk. Why might they do that? Because of criminal history. Well, as should be clear by now, most any algorithm worth its salt is going to include criminal history. So in other words, the judge is double counting criminal history. But if it's opaque, if it's artificial intelligence, so we don't know what risk factors are going into it, then we are going to have a problem where things might be double counted and we don't know it. Okay, and delving deeper into risk factors, do you feel like it would be fair for an algorithm to use risk factors that on that the person doesn't control? Take, for instance, um, a person's parents' criminal history, even if it improves the accuracy of the algorithm. Right. Uh, that's, again, a good question. Certainly, there's an argument to be made that an algorithm can never rely on a risk factor over which the person has no control. And you gave some examples of that. Um, so, for instance, one famous risk assessment instrument uh, uses as a risk factor the fact that neither parent was at home when the person was at age 16 or, or younger. The person has no control over that, presumably, at all. Another risk factor found in many risk assessment instruments is age. We have no control over that. And of course, race. Well, I would not allow race to be used, but I, for reasons that should be obvious, but I would maybe allow age to be used. Why? Because it's a very potent predictor. Young people are much more likely to recidivate than older people. But your question then is, well, is that fair, given the fact the person has no control over their age? Um, the response I would make to that, which is not satisfactory to everyone, uh, certainly people who are retributivists who believe the punishment should be about desert, what a person deserves, well, you don't deserve an extra year on your sentence because you're young. Um, that, that I would concede, that's, that's totally unfair. But what I would say in response to people who make this argument is that a, you're not being given an extra year on your sentence because you're young. What the age risk factor is doing is providing circumstantial evidence of choices you will make. So if you're young and you didn't have any parents when you were a young person and you have a certain kind of criminal history and you've been unresponsive treatment, you add up your risk factors, all of that is circumstantial evidence which suggests if it's a good algorithm and the person's found to be high risk, the person is going to make a choice to do something bad in the future. So I don't see the fact that a risk factor has nothing to do with conduct or choice as being unfair because it's merely circumstantial evidence of a choice a person will make um, of their own free will. Um, much like, for instance, uh, if an individual is convicted based on, let's say, uh, on a charge of homicide, uh, because the prosecution is able to produce circumstantial evidence that the individual has a weapon, that the individual is married to the victim, that the individual is near the scene of the crime. Well, none of those three factors are blameworthy in and of themselves. And some of them aren't even conduct. And yet, that could form the basis for a conviction and ultimately, of course, a sentence. Yeah, absolutely. So going off of your note on you know just desserts, um, I'm curious, do you believe the length of a sentence should be determined specifically by the crime committed or the amount of rehabilitation an individual should need? And what should that balance be in the context of public safety? Well, what I argue in the book is that the sentence range ought to be determined by what I'm calling just dessert. 
Okay, so in other words, the maximum for a homicide would be higher than the maximum for an armed robbery, which would be higher than the maximum for a burglary, and so on. Um, now, what that maximum would be would be up to the legislature. What the legislature thinks is the maximum amount of punishment deserved for a particular crime. The minimum, I would prefer to be probation for any crime, but I doubt seriously legislatures would adopt that. But maybe one year to, say, 30 years for homicide or one year to whatever, you think the maximum sentence should be. This, in fact, was the kind of sentencing regime we had in this country, in this state in California, for instance, for quite some time until the 1970s. Then the precise sentence within that range would be determined by risk assessments of the type we're talking about. So high-risk people would stay in longer, up to the maximum, not necessarily to the maximum, but up to the maximum. Medium-risk people would get out earlier based on whether they've been rehabilitated or not. And low-risk people may never go to prison or go to prison for a short time and then uh, be released maybe on probation. Interesting. But um, what do you think are the main drawbacks of using algorithms today? And do you think that these drawbacks will change as technology evolves? Well, I think the main, main drawback is some, many of them are not very good. Uh, and I, th I think the developers would admit that. And I have to admit, I cannot point to a model algorithm at this point in time. I think there's several that are very good. And for instance, I think several that rely on static factors are pretty good have pretty good predictive um, validity, but they rely on static factors, which as I suggested is not a good thing. So we should combine those with risk assessment instruments that include dynamic factors. Um, if we could get the law to get invested in this, then I can guarantee there'd be better algorithms developed. And if that happens, um, then I would be quite willing to argue even more forcefully than I have been during this podcast for algorithms. But I think right now, we're still in the developmental stage of algorithms. More work needs to be done. We need more research on them before I would say, oh, let's definitely move in that direction right now. And that's true with a lot of scientific uh, um, developments, of course. Now, once we get those good algorithms, um, I think I would push for the kind of uh, regime that I was talking with Sophie, right? That I was talking to Sophie about. Um, have the range set by dessert and then have the particular sentence, the precise sentence set by risk. Was that an answer to your question or did you have something No, else? no, it was, it yeah. was. It was like a balance of mm -hmm. rehabilitation and dessert. Well, certainly, yes, and rehabilitation is absolutely crucial. And I, I don't talk about that much in my book because there have been many other books written about the best way of trying to prevent recidivism through rehabilitative programs. Um, and I think algorithms can help identify the risk factors, as I said before, that might the best approach through risk management programs. Uh, but there are lots of other things to say about risk management and treatment, um, and I think it's crucial. Reentry programs are crucial. Uh, we don't, we shouldn't release someone from prison with a dollar bill, and that's it. We yeah. need to do a much better job of transitioning people out of prison. So there's a lot to be said about that, but I have to admit my book had enough to say about algorithms, <laughs> and I didn't get into that in the book. You, you spoke about the law investing in algorithms. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a future for the privatization of it? I think there's definitely a future, but I don't think it's something I would advocate for. Yeah. Um, I think, unfortunately, in many different areas of criminal justice, including policing, with predictive policing and surveillance technology, and in this area, private companies are trying to take over. They see profit in these situations. And in fact, uh, the uh, risk assessment that may be pretty good, but I don't know, because it was developed by a private company that will not reveal the risk factors involved are the weights that are assigned to them. It's called the compass. 
um, I think that's very problematic we, for the reasons I said before. And I'm afraid private companies interested in profit and interested in protecting trade secrets will push us in exactly the wrong direction. I would much rather have these algorithms developed by universities based on funding from legislatures, uh, which do it in an open source way, which do it transparently, or at the least that universities be given the data that the private companies use to develop their algorithms so they can double check it, at the least do that. So I guess my response to your question is I hope there isn't a huge future <laughs> for private companies in this area. Yeah, fair enough. And you spoke before about, you know, legal buy-in to algorithms. Why hasn't there been legal buy-in to this point? Well, I think it's fair to say that every state in this country uses risk assessment instruments to some extent, either pre-trial in terms of bail decision-making, and some states like New Jersey have been quite successful in using risk assessment instruments. Other states use it to help determine sentence. Other states using a parole. Uh, other states use it within the prison system to determine where an individual should go. So there is buy-in to that extent, but I think uh, one reason states are rightfully a little bit cautious is what I said already, that there hasn't been necessarily enough work done on making sure the algorithms are valid. And then I also think, and this is something that gets to your question a little bit earlier, I think some policymakers are leery of basing anything on risk basing anything on what might happen in the future. And I understand that. Um, some people say the only thing the criminal justice system should be interested in is what the person has done in the past. And the person should be punished solely for what they've done in the past, whatever crimes they've committed. And risk should have no role to play whatsoever in sentencing. Um, I have response to that very briefly. It is that it's that backward looking retributive just desserts approach to punishment that's gotten to where we are today, which is obscenely high incarceration rates. Because once you make everything about punishment, it's very easy for legislators to say, oh, well, armed robbers deserve another couple of years. Um, people commit murder deserve the death penalty. And what we've seen since the 1970s when we abandoned the rehabilitative preventive approach is an upward ratcheting of sentences every year, year after year, so that we have sentences that are three times longer than what you see in Europe for exactly the same crime. Yeah. And given that you spoke about the opaqueness of AI and algorithms earlier, how do you see the future of, or the future relationship of technology and law evolving, especially in the lens of public skepticism? Well, I think if you count as technology regression analysis, where you are very clear on what the risk factors are, I see a huge development uh, taking place there. Now, whether what I've been calling machine learning artificial intelligence, which is much less transparent than the kind of regression analysis approach, which list the 12 factors or the 15 factors that are being considered, then I have some of the problems we were talking about earlier because a lot of times these machine learning devices are not interpretable by human. Uh, they're, um, they're, kind, they're, they're based on reasoning that we may not be able to intuitively understand. And I think that's a problem for the legal system. I'm not saying they couldn't be used in other walks of life. We may not care if we can understand how they arrive at their result in other walks of life. But in the criminal justice system, I think we have to demand transparency so we understand what's going on, for all the reasons I talked about earlier. And I would add a constitutional argument. The Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution says that people have a right to confront their accusers. Well, these algorithms, when they say you're high risk, are accusing you, in a sense. And you have a right to confront that algorithm, and you can't confront it if it's opaque, if a private company is claiming trade secrets. Absolutely. Um 
right before we wrap up, I just wanted to know, uh, do you have any advice that you would give to a student trying to pursue a career in mental health and law? Well, um, I will say that about half the law schools in the country don't teach mental health law. So if you're thinking about going to law school and the health law, make sure you go to a law school that has that kind of a course. Um, Vanderbilt does the school that, that I teach at, of course. Um, and in addition, there are several centers that focus on mental disability law, probably the most famous one being the Bazelon Center in Washington, D.C. So even if you're not interested in going to law school for whatever reason, that is an organization that's always interested in people who want to work in this area. I think it's a fascinating area. I mean, algorithm is just one small niche in the mental health law area. You've got uh, issues ranging from the insane defense to um, civil commitment law to mental health courts to juvenile justice. Um, it's a very rich area. And um, I think you just want to make sure you go to a school that has courses in those areas. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry.